everyone, and welcome back to What's Appa, a rewatch podcast of the greatest show ever, Avatar The Last Airbender. I'm Joyce. I'm Justin. And I'm Anand. And this week, we want to give a special shout out to our friend Shri, who read the intro. This is episode 26 of our podcast, where we'll be discussing Zuko alone. Uh, and so today we're going to be doing something a little different because this episode is a little different uh, in the context of the show. And we're actually not going to be going through the plot chronologically, but rather discussing some of the themes and different uh, topics that jumped out at us while we rewatched this episode. So let's get into it. Cool. So before we begin with that, I just want to start with a quick plot summary just to give you all an overview, remind you all of what happened in this episode. So we have Zuko who's traveling alone after ditching uncle and he finds this Earth Kingdom town where he bonds with a young boy and his family. And Zuko helps defend the family from these rogue Earth Kingdom soldiers who terrorize the town. And during this time, he has flashbacks of his childhood. And then in the end, Zuko defeats the soldiers and reveals that he is a firebender and the crown prince of the Fire Nation. But in the end, the boy and his family reject him because of it, and he leaves by himself alone. Cute. Roll the credits. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah, so I think upon rewatching, one of the things that jumped out at all three of us is the fact that this episode is really shaped around the genre of a Western. So... What is a Western, guys? Just, you know, to give a quick overview if people like me haven't seen Westerns before. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I can start. I don't really have a good good uh, explanation for this one. So, Justin, you can probably explain more. But uh, I, too, have not watched many Westerns. But uh, I guess the common themes of Westerns are it's usually about this lone man who usually has a complicated history, usually a dark history, and he's wandering alone, comes into a town. And these towns are, as, as the genre title describes, based on uh, the American West, where there wasn't really any law enforcement. It was kind of just every man, every woman for themselves. And a lot of vigilante justice, a lot of honor justice. Um, and yeah, it kind of deals with those kind of figures. Yeah, so in the research I've done, a lot of parallels are created between this episode and spaghetti westerns. So spaghetti westerns are specifically a subgenre of westerns that are created by European, particularly Italian and Spanish <laughs> filmmakers, uh, ironically, in the 1960s. Um, and their influence uh, comes from one director in particular, Sergio Leone. And he actually has a lot of influence on modern cinematography. Um, Quentin Tarantino has been quoted to say the one artist that has the most influence on his work was Sergio Leone. Uh, Martin Scorsese apparently watched his films once a week. Stanley Kubrick called him and asked him questions during his career as a filmmaker. And um, what this genre did is it kind of undermined the idea, at least in traditional Westerns, which had a very traditionally Christian background where the hero has a nice ending. Um, it kind of takes this more realist approach to Westerns that has a very gritty, a realistic ending. 
Um, and this kind of was from the upbringing of these Italian filmmakers who grew up in the time of Benito Mussolini, uh, who had a mm. lot of censorship over the art form and over the public and, the, and free thought in Italy at the time. So it's very, very interesting. interesting. So this yeah. episode would be more spaghetti Western because of the somber and like unhappy ending. Yeah, I think that is a part of it. Also, there's a lot of sim cinematography techniques that are very, very similar to Leon's cinematography. So, for example, the close-up shot of Zuko's face and then a immediate following shot of the surrounding area, uh, a mm -hmm. very far away shot that kind of lingers for a while, is very, very typical of his type of cinematography that you see in his films, such as A Fistful of Dollars. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. So speaking of A Fistful of Dollars, that movie was actually inspired by this movie called Yojimbo, which was directed by Akira Kurosawa, which was basically a Japanese Western. And it's it like the the uh, character of the samurai is used instead of the, the character of the cowboy or whatever in the Western. And so like there is a very kind of clear parallel between this Yojimbo film and this Zuko alone episode. It's about this like Ronin who wanders through the Japanese countryside and then he stops at this farmhouse and then he meets this like boy and then I don't know he like he basically solves the conflict of the town and then leaves by himself in the end. So there's a very clear um, parallel between those two. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds basically exactly like this episode. Another uh, reference or inspiration, or like movie inspiration that I saw, this was actually just like the one, the movie listed on the Avatar Wiki was a Western called Shane. Apparently it's like a very famous Western in general, like in the whole genre, but it was, uh, it's about a, you know, a mysterious stranger who also like goes and like helps out a family and befriends the family's boy. Um, and I remember reading something that was, um, like in one of the scenes in Shane, the uh, Shane actually like has a scene with the boy where he shows the boy how to use a pistol, which I feel like hmm. is, you know, reminiscent of the scene in this episode where Zuko shows Lee how to use the dual blades. Um, and yeah, eventually he leaves, but and like defeats the bad guys. Oh, another stereotypical or like hallmark of these movies is like a showdown at high noon, which I suppose is like just noon, right? <laughs> but um, I think I read somewhere that in Zuko alone, the showdown actually happens closer to sunset. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's how it looked too in the scene. Um, another thing that they a lot of them have in common is this helping of women and children or like the damsel in distress trope. And I feel like in this episode, Sela Lee's mom is kind of the damsel in distress, which he helps out um, after, you know, she comes back and begs Zuko to come back and, you know, like save Lee because he pulled the knife on the, on the bad guys. And, mm -hmm. um, oh my gosh. And then like Avatar Wiki is so weird, like in the comments <laughs> sometimes, but I read somebody saying like, is it just me or is Sela like into Zuko? And then I was like, that is so sick. <laughs> like that is really horrible <laughs> um but i don't know maybe they got that from the damsel in distress is probably usually uh 
love interest character in mm-hmm. many of these movies, but people people are weird out there on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I liked what you were saying on it about um, how a lot of these movies center around codes of honor, because I think that's very mm-hmm. Western, um, you know, where there are these towns that were just popping up and it didn't really have any organized government or, or like you said, like justice systems, which is really different from what we saw in Avatar Day just, mm-hmm. you know, a few episodes ago. Right, right. Um, and I think it also just works really well with the themes in this show because like Zook and, and especially Zuko, cause his whole yep. like, like conflict is he needs to restore his honor. Yeah. Um, which is, yep. yeah. And so there's just like a lot of pride around like this, like involved in the characters, the genre and like Zuko which makes him the perfect protagonist in this like mini Western, I think. Mm-hmm. Totally. Cool. Before we jump into some of the more episode related things, one thing I do want to mention up is the fact that the writer for this episode is Elizabeth Ehas, whose husband is also a writer for Avatar The Last Airbender, Aaron Ehas. And when people talk about the best episodes in the series, um, at least the highest rated episodes by IM, according to IMDb, uh, the names that commonly come up are Bright, Aaron Ehas, and the less talked about Elizabeth Ehas. So to put in the context, Sozin's Comet Part 4 and Part 3 are written by Bright. Siege of the North Part 2 is her husband. The Crossroads of Destiny is her husband's. Um, so this comment part two is also uh, Aaron Ehas, uh, but some of the uh, episodes that have the greatest world building and character development uh, that also involve characters when they're alone, such as Zuko alone, uh, Av- the Avatar and the Fire Lord, Abba's Lost Days are written by Elizabeth uh, Ehas. Whoa. So Yeah, very cool. cool. What a power duo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so speaking of other things that are awesome, uh, we see some very awesome animals in this episode. Uh, anyone, anyone want to talk about that a little more? Yeah. So when we approach the Lee family homestead, we see that they have a pig farm, but not just any pig farm, pig hybrid animal farm. (laughs) So we see a bunch of different pig hybrids and they are all extremely cute, maybe even rivaling the turtle duck, I would say. Some of them are kind of cute, pretty cute. Um, So we see a moo sow, which is a cow and pig. We see a pickin, which is a pig chicken. We see pigster, which is pig rooster or a gangster pig. Um, (laughs) Pig deer, which is a pig deer. And the woolly pig, which is a pig and woolly mammoth. Just kidding. A pig sheep. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, quite I a variety the pig they deer. have. They're doing well for themselves, except for the fact that uh, Sensu is in the war and then they're getting bullied. But. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're also missing there's a cameo from the turtle ducks in the flashback with Zuko and his mom. Oh, you're right. You're right. I forgot about the the flashbacks. Yes, the turtle ducks are there. Because they couldn't let the pig hybrids, you know, steal the show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
But yeah, I when I was looking into these animals online, I found some pretty funny facts and other comments. So on the pickin, the pig chicken, somebody in the in the comments on Avatar Wiki said, mmm, bacon flavored chicken. Wow. So that's like that's pretty the chicken is probably mm. a real delicacy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then um, on the wooly pig, I read uh, its wool gets particularly muddy, however, because the wooly pig tends to roll around in muck. So maybe they're just bad, like second rate sheep. Like if you are a poor farmer or, you know, then you can only get a wooly pig because they're wool ends up being all gross anyways <laughs> hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah we do know that chickens exist in the avatar universe though we do because though was like does a lemu oh! taste like chicken oh possum chicken possum, possum chicken. chicken there we go uh, yeah uh, maybe not a, maybe not pure chicken uh, pure no breed pure chicken. chicken yeah so now we know there's two types of chicken Yes, pig chicken and possum chicken. Hmm. I have to say, pig chicken, bacon flavor chicken sounds like a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for animals. Just wanted to shout them out, you know. Cool. So a greater portion of this episode is Zuko dealing with these flashbacks while he is also dealing with this earth nation household Uh, so there's kind of an a plot and a b plot here the a plot being him in the desert after leaving uncle iroh over the last couple of episodes and trying to navigate the desert alone uh, trying to figure out things for himself Um, and then the b plot is his flashbacks to his time in the royal family that flesh out and really characterize, you know, the political intrigue, um, the politics, the drama of being the prince of the Fire Nation, and really give a lot of character and flavor to both Ozai and Ursa. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a lot of significance we can kind of bite into here. I think this is the meat of the episode and, and the <laughs> juiciest part of the episode. Mm-hmm. So I guess the first thing I want to ask is, uh, initially when Zuko is traveling through the desert, uh, here we see a lot of kind of the panning shots uh, that are like very reminiscent of, you know, spaghetti westerns in the own cinematography style. But interspersed in between these are very, very, very short flashbacks, uh, almost like hallucinations in the desert. Uh, For example, one of them is of his mother. Uh, What do you guys think? Is there any significance to this? Um, perhaps this is kind of signaling like what he's thinking about when he's at his weakest. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he had some cactus juice. (laughs) 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 The hallucinations. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I think we see that here, like his mom is someone that gives him strength right about like just about when he's right when he's about to, um, like lose all strength. He, he pictures his mom. One thing I thought was interesting is, Zuko has been in this kind of situation before at the North Pole when he was carrying Aang. It was very similar that he was in a situation where he was by himself and losing strength very quickly. Um, And I guess in that episode, we don't see what he was thinking. But 
mm-hmm. guess this it's cool that in this episode we do because it's kind of a Zuko alone like deep dive in on Zuko that we actually get to see what he's thinking. So maybe he was also thinking of her in the North Pole too. Hmm. Uh, I, I think there's another battle significance here, which is to show that uh, when Zuko's weakest, his first thought is to his mom, like his, uh, like that his stronger relationship here is to Ursa, which I think will become very significant to the plot very soon. And mm-hmm. it's very cool to see that they establish it this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, just if you're watching it for the first time, you have no idea mm-hmm. who she is. Who she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't see cool. uncle like he sees his mom. So that's interesting. Yeah. Rip mm-hmm. rip Iroh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think of that, but that's sad. <laughs> so to get to the more fleshed out flashbacks, I'm just going to kind of list them off here because um, I think they'll be productive. So what a weird way to describe that. So the first one of these flashbacks is... Ursa and Zuko sitting next to this pond. It's a very memorable one. I'm sure all of you will remember this, but they're feeding the turtle ducks. And then Zuko makes a comment that, you know, Azula said something about, you know, being weak. And he throws a rock at one of the baby turtle ducks. And then the mom turtle duck comes and bites his leg. And then Ursa makes a comment like, that's what happens when you mess with uh, a mom's babies. They bite back and she kind of like chomps at him and they have a good time. Um, But uh, yeah. So the next flashback is um, Azula trying to make fun of Mai's crush on Zuko. Uh, so she basically plays this game where she puts an apple on top of Mai's head and then she, Mai's head, I don't know why I'm saying Mai, because uh, <laughs> it's spelled like that. Uh, she firebends at the apple, which knocks her into a fountain and Zuko jumps in with her. And then Azula starts making fun of Mai and Zuko with Ty Lee. Uh, and then also in the same flashback, um, younger Iroh here sends gifts from the front line of the war. He sends Zuko his iconic dagger and he sends Azula a doll. Uh, the third flashback is Ursa reading a letter that Luten has died. And then the corresponding reactions, both from Zuko, who thinks this is a horrible thing that has just happened, and then Azula. Uh, So following up that with a fourth flashback, Azula calls Iroh a loser for coming back from the war because his son died. And I believe she she says something along the lines of a true general would stay and and finish out, finish out the siege or take over the city, something along those lines. Burn bossing say to the ground. (laughs) There it is. Uh, Joyce, Joyce has all the Azula quotes. Cool. And then rounding out the flashbacks are just three more. Uh, They're pretty quickly in succession. Azula, uh, so Azula, Iroh, Ozai, and Ursa meeting Azulon. And they're kind of like kneeling before their grandfather on the ground. Um, Azula and Zuko are demonstrating firebending. Azula being obviously leagues better than Zuko is at this stage. I don't know, it kind of reminds me of like Thanksgiving with my family playing instruments. I don't know, it's very strange. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, and then 
Azula telling Zuko that Ozai is going to kill him. Uh, Ursa leaving in the middle of the night. And then finally, the funeral for Azulon. I, I think these flashbacks serve as really, really great world building, really, really great, uh, I guess, fleshing out of character for not only Zuko, but the entire royal family. Um, but uh, there's an A plot and a B plot, and I think it's very intentional the way that this episode is written. So I, what I'm curious is, do you guys see any parallels between the royal family and the current earthbending family, uh, which is Lee and Sensu, et cetera? Um, so one thing that I noticed was that uh, Ursa and Sela, I feel like, have some parallels because they're both really protective of their children. And I feel like, I mean, when Ursa says, like, you know, if you mess with the mom's babies, they're going to bite you back. That's, that was already like a nice bit of foreshadowing, too. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and yeah, Ursa also means bear in Latin. Mm -hmm. And obviously, mom, mom bears are very protective. So it's, it's oh, just in her like Ursa nature. Major. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, like Sela was ready to protect her son against Zuko after she found out that he was the crown prince, firebender, like a very dangerous guy, clearly. Mm -hmm. um, and she just put herself in between Zuko and Lee. And yeah, I think, yeah, I, that was one of the first parallels that I saw. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so another parallel that I saw that we could talk about is the parallel between, I guess, both Lu Ten and Sensu, and then Zuko and then Lee. Um, so we have, in Zuko's case, Lu Ten, which is almost like an older brother figure who goes off to the war and ends up dying, leaving Zuko kind of alone. Because I, I don't think he plays very well with Azula and friends, as we see. And mm -hmm. then on in this family, we see um, Sensu, who goes to the war and we learned that he goes to the front lines and may end up dying. And Lee, who's kind of left alone um, with with no one to kind of play with. Um, and so I think in this episode, we also see Zuko and Lee bond a lot, especially when Lee steals Zuko's broadswords and goes out to the to the fields to play around with them. Uh, Zuko kind of teaches him and and they're able to bond a little bit. And then Lee also mentions um, that he's a lot like his brother Sensu and that mm. he would like him a lot. Um, so kind of like there's this kind of some, um, some bonding there. Also when, when Zuko is with, um, Lee and his mother and when the fire, uh, when the earth nation soldiers are threatening them and saying that, uh, their brother has just gone to the front lines. Uh, we see that Zuko kind of tenses up when he learns this information and it kind of mm. feels like he's almost reliving. I think they tie this well with the flashback that just happens, but it seems like he's kind of reliving the news that Lu Ten had died or had gone mm. off to the war or something. So I thought that was an interesting yeah. parallel too. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I thought that was, I agree. I was like, when I was reading stuff, I guess... It's kind of unclear what Zuko and Lu Ten's relationship is, but you can see just from the little ways that he reacts when he hears the news that they were like probably pretty close, you know, and, and Lu Ten being a lot older probably than him because Iroh is a lot older than Ozai. Zuko probably like idolized him and mm -hmm. I think 
if you consider that as their relationship, it makes um, this episode a lot sadder too. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like Zuko maybe saw a little bit of himself in Lee as just, I mean, I don't know. It's a little bit of a stretch because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Lee's kind of just like a generic kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know. I guess that brings me to another thing that I liked about this episode is I think that Zuko is obviously learning to embrace the compassionate side of him again. But I think he's especially good at that towards kids, which is like, ah, but it reminded me of in the search, um, in the comic, the search where you see Zuko interacting with Kiyi. I'm not going to say any more than that in case you haven't read the search. Mm-hmm. So go oh, read it. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. But he is just, he has this real, he has this instinct to, um, be kind towards children, mm-hmm. which it's is because he knows the mom's going to bite him. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh yeah. He learned it the hard way. <laughs> um, that's why he's yeah. mean to Aang. Aang doesn't have a mom. <laughs> no, no one can get me now. <laughs> you know, technically neither do Katara or Sokka, so this really works out for him. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's why he hates Team Avatar. <laughs> oh, no repercussions. He, he's got a mommy complex. <laughs> oh man, that's really funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, one of my favorite interactions between him and Lee was when Lee was first taking him to their farm and mm-hmm. the pigs are all and the pig hybrid animals are all making noise. And then he's like, no one can ever sneak up on us. And Zuko's like, huh? No kidding. And he's kind of like, <laughs> it's like kind of a little chuckle. And mm-hmm. and I don't know, it really gave me season three Zuko vibes. And mm-hmm. I just loved it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, I'm ready for season three. The best season. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Yeah, I think uh, one, uh, at least the final parallel coming from me, I think is very interesting. It's it's not really a parallel, more of like very stark ju- juxtaposition, which is that Zuko's life, and and really up until this point, this is the first time we really learn this because everything else we know about the Fire Nation family is through stories told by Uncle Iroh. Right. Mm. And I think Uncle Iroh is always trying to protect his nephew and maybe like protect the reputations of the royal family and things like that. And he doesn't want anyone privy to this information. But we really learn how political the life of these royal family members is. It's almost like and I don't know how relatable this is to a majority of you listeners, but as a child, I grew up watching these like dramas of, you know, Qing and like old dynasty, like royal families. And it's always like very backstabby. You know, the emperor has many concubines and wives <laughs> and like all the kids are vying to be the next emperor and they're like poisoning each other and everything. And that really almost is what it feels like here. Um, and this is the first time in the entire show that we learn of the complexities of this and Ursa's role as a protector versus the very simple farm life that is led by these, you know, random earth soldier, uh, earth bending family, um, just trying to ha- live on a farm, like a very loving family and how it's destroyed by this war. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I think that's a very interesting parallel. And for the first time where he sees it from the eyes of the people on the ground, I think. Whoa, yeah. that's a great point. And you know what that makes me think of? That makes me think of when Azula brings up the plan that Ozai is going to kill Zuko. And she's like, 
maybe a nice Earth Kingdom family can mm-hmm. adopt you. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been so much happier in this family. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, and then Lee literally is like, will you stay? Yeah. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> Why doesn't he stay? I know. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's such a good question. I don't yeah. really know. I mean, I, I guess mean, he's, he still feels like he's on the mission. Like, he, he wouldn't, he couldn't yeah, live with no, himself he's not if completely he just stayed in this the Earth royal family. family. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he's, there's a lot more to be done, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Aw. Yeah. But no, it's it's good. He does get to I think oh well, I was kind of thinking that um you remember Song's family showed them yeah. a lot of kindness mm-hmm. and he yeah. kind of rebuffed them. Mm-hmm. But I guess he really had more of an extended uh, like authentic Airbnb experience. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's funny. I think it's like uh, Deutz, uh, Deutz shoots like agar, agar tourism farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do think a large part of that is because of Lee and like Joyce, as you were saying that, like he sees a little bit of himself in there. So I think he was like more, mm-hmm. he's able to empathize a little more, I think. Mm hmm. Yeah, he didn't want to, like, mess with Song because he still got May back at home. <laughs> but, like, this kid is... <laughs> yeah, this kid he can uh, open up to. Yeah. yeah. I really like to imagine, like, all these years later as the Fire Lord, he, like, goes to this random Earth Kingdom village and just gives Song, like, a million of these, like, random uh, ostrich horses. <laughs> oh, Wow. Oh, that'd be nice. Oh, speaking of him becoming Fire Lord later, too, I think a lot of the discussion in the Avatar Wiki that I was reading was curious about whether or not Zuko and Lee reconcile after he Mm. becomes Fire Lord. Mm -hmm. But probably not. Oh, and then a bunch of people were like, this conspiracy theory that Lee is Amon <laughs> from Korra. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I don't know. They're like, Wait, he but- hates the Fire Nation so much or or like Bendy. Or I don't really know. That doesn't make any sense. It was just like a real like crazy theory. <laughs> True conspiracy theory. <laughs> like really, theory. really crazy. Uh, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah another final one for me uh parallel between not the families but just the flashbacks and the current story is um i saw a parallel between gao and ozai and azula so gao is the main earthbender soldier earthbending earth sorry earth kingdom soldier Uh, bully guy mm um and i think there was like a lot of there's a lot of hidden meaning behind Zuko's confrontation of the bullies in the A plot when he's like confronting Gao and his cronies. And he says, you guys are a bunch of sick cowards messing with a family who's already lost one son to the war. And I was just like, this is straight up a subtweet at Ozai and Azula <laughs> for messing with Iroh and mm-hmm. his loss of Luten to the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is a sp- like this showdown happens like, after we see um, the meeting of the royal family with Azulon. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, like he's dropping bars against <laughs> Ozai and Azula. And they like, they're not even there to clap back <laughs> at him, you know? <laughs> That's <laughs> um, a good point. Yeah. Um, and oh, and that, that was actually another thing, uh, another like more, I guess, 
concrete link between Zuko and Lee that I saw because like Lee has this instinct to stand up to bullies too like I think he has a very good I like a very um innate instinct uh like knowing what's right and what's wrong kind of like (laughs) Zuko did and it got lost along the way Mm -hmm. but yeah 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 I like that yeah, and then just one observation about the flashbacks, nothing to do with the main story, is that um, the flashbacks use, like we've seen in other flashbacks, very faded colors, but there's also this slight glow in the scenes. And one scene in particular that was interesting is that first scene with Zuko and his mother by the pond. Uh, Ursa's kind of in the shadows while Zuko is, like, glowing a little bit. Like, it's very, like, it's very distinct and not really realistic lighting and that perhaps hints at the fact that she her presence in his life was very short-lived and like fleeting Hmm. because she's like back in the shadows also i didn't come up with that i read that online but i thought that was super (laughs) cool and then i like had to go back and rewatch it and i was like interesting come to think of it the first flashback he has is also incredibly short-lived where she like kind of turns around and it's fake black and then the other scene I can remember very distinctly is when she's on his bed and she's telling him to remember who he is. Um, yep. That's also very distinct. Mm-hmm. And it's also very black. Yeah, yeah, it is. Cool. So um, the next segment is we wanted to dive a little deeper into the royal family tea and the relationships between all the different members, uh, including the extended royal family. Um, And so we're just going to break it down and see what we've learned, because we learned a ton in this episode. We didn't know anything about Ursa, hardly anything about Ozai, just got a little tiny introduction to Azula, but um, we get to like psychoanalyze them now. So the first relationship of interest was to me, and I think to us is Ozai and Azula. Um, so one thing that I noticed first is that I think Azula, it's kind of clear that Azula just respects her father so much. Um, and just like, I think as we go on, we see that Azula really has only ever viewed Ozai as her equal and everyone else is kind of like below her. And as such, I think she's always desired to I mean, he's he's always favored her, but she's always needed that validation from him because Hmm. he's like the only person that she thinks is worthy of like anything. Um, I'm just curious, like what makes what uh, like what makes you think that she needs his approval? Um, well, so so kind of just a lot of the stuff that I read on uh, read about Azula had to do with like her entire arc through the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think clearly at the end of the series, you see like the one person's opinion who she valued mm-hmm. um, yeah. s- slip away. And that like really leads to her yeah. unraveling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah. So it's not exactly clear from these flashbacks, probably that like she, you know, respects like him more than everyone else i guess it's just clear that she didn't respect anybody (laughs) and then like later becomes clear that like she does respect her father um Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, I guess they're like also like her entire personality basically comes from him. Mm -hmm. Um, I think her lust Mm -hmm. for power, which I think we see a bit like a lot of in this episode, starting from a very young age. Yeah, like one of the things I definitely noticed and like one way that like this observation might might come about is there's that one point in the flashbacks where she's like, I, I forget exactly what it is, but she's like, oh, if Iroh like can't come back, then that would mean like father would become the fire lord or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, like maybe that could mean like she implicitly like likes her father a lot better or respects him like enough that he could be fire lord. But also mm-hmm. the way I saw that was like, if Ozai becomes fire lord, then she's like one step closer to the crown yeah. herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a it's hard to tell whether or not she even cares about Ozai or mm-hmm. she's really mm-hmm. just in it for herself. Yeah. That's interesting. That's I, interesting. I there's another way to view that too, which is that Ozai clearly favors her and clearly uh, respects her ability as a firebender. But Iroh, very obviously through the gifts, does not see this in her. So mm-hmm. she wants to install someone on the throne who does have this favorable view of her. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting that you bring this relationship up, though. I th- I think this episode does kind of uh, show the, almost the inverse, which is that Ozai views his relationship with his daughter and his son as a very transactional thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he when it favors him that he can show off Azula to her father, his father, mm-hmm. uh, he's very happy about it and he's very disappointed in the reverse. Yeah. Um, and then when, you know, Azula insinuates that he's willing to give up his son in order to appease Azulan, um, and that like seems like a thing. Like Zuko almost has to convince himself that she's lying, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good points. Um, on to happier relationships, though. We also get to see for the first time Zuko and his mother. And yeah, I think we see how clearly happy he was in his childhood um, when he was with his mother. I think the first scene when they're feeding the turtle ducks after she like removes the angry mother turtle duck, they like giggle and laugh and I think I remember we talked about how like Zuko only laughs like twice or three times or it's debated throughout Mm -hmm. the whole series as uh, a teen. But yeah, he like laughs so hard when he's with his mom and there's so much love and motherly love and it's just very sweet. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess for me in this relationship, um, in this episode, there are two quotes that kind of stuck out. The first is after Zuko performs for Fire Lord Azulan and fails, his mother comes up to him very lovingly, embraces him, and she says some encouraging words. And she says, that's who you are, Zuko, someone who keeps fighting, even though it's hard. Um, and that I think that's really important. And also, there's a scene at the flashback at the end where his mom is leaving uh, forever and then she leaves with she leaves him with no matter how things may seem to change, never forget who you are. And I think both of those are things that stay with him through the rest of his life and this this whole his whole arc. Uh, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she proceeds the first quote by saying, no, I loved watching you, mm-hmm. which I think is a yeah. very powerful words of affirmation he will never get from his sister and his father. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. 
Definitely. And that made me think of another thing, which is, you know, after his mother leaves, that's, mm-hmm. it explains why he needs his father's love that much more mm-hmm. because like he'll be, probably never see his mother again. And everybody, like every child needs the love of a parent. And, and like, that's probably why he hangs on so much harder to mm. getting, yeah. winning Ozai's acceptance. I, I'm actually surprised he doesn't harbor more resentment because he, clearly he's never given a good reason why she left. All he knows is his mother left him. At least yeah. towards for a kid that young towards like her, his mother. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I guess she was the only positive, positive thing in his life. Yeah. And she was, was like, everything I've done is to protect you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he like knows how effed up his family is. So yeah. <laughs> he's like, oh, man, she like probably did something bad or. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, grandfather mysteriously dies, like mm-hmm. can put things. Yeah, together, I wonder I what he thinks. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the other thing we see is that, like, Ursa and Zuko, just the person, like, he clearly gets a lot of, like, all his traits from her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, she kept him sane and, like, helped him become not, like, Azula and the perfectionist mm-hmm. striving person, like, person that she became. I don't know. And and then clearly she has, like, a lot of empathy and and... And then I was just a good person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, and I think we see that. Um, and that shows us that like we I think we were, knew that Zuko was on a path towards redemption. But now we see that it's like inside of him mm-hmm. somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. it's like really possible. This like very uh, un- impatient, petulant, like arrogant child. And we, we got to see his inner world. It mm-hmm. kind of puts a lot of it into context. Yeah. Um, I kind of don't want to jump the gun on Ursa and Azula, but I guess I am jumping the gun on Ursa and Azula. But I think this episode also, I guess, like subconsciously brings up this question of like nature versus nurture. Right. Mm-hmm. If Zuko is being Zuko, if Zuko is being raised by his mom and Azula is kind of being raised by her father. Uh at some point, even Ursa, who ostensibly is this good person who has morals and things, right? If even she kind of mutters on her breath, the the mother of her, like, of Azula says, what is wrong with this child? Mm-hmm. Um, is Azula inherently bad? Is Zuko inherently good? Is Zuko only good because of his mom? Or is Azula only bad because of her father, you know? Does Zuko become worse over time because of his father? Mm. If Azula had Iroh at her side all the time, trying to help her along the right path, would we have like a reverse situation here? No, she's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Although, I, I mean, yeah, maybe if Ursa like showed Azula more support, mm-hmm. it would have been different. Also, I was reading an Avatar wiki that on Ursa's page, people were not that huge of fans of Ursa. Oh, really? Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, people are kind of like, people think she's a saint, but really, like, she left Suko and, like, like she didn't have to. Like, she didn't even have to, like, marry Ozai in the first place. And then, like, then she just bails after and, like, you know, leaves her kids. Like, she could have said no. And then other comments are mm. like, no, she couldn't have. They would have, like, killed her because they're the royal family or something <laughs> like that or, like, killed her parents. Well, they would have um, killed Zuko. 
No, no. So they, a lot of people said initially she could have just like, if she didn't want to be in the Royal family and make mm. that commitment that like, mm-hmm. she shouldn't have like married in, in the first place. I don't, I don't think that's really fair. Oh, and then they were saying like, oh, she runs away anyways. Like she could have run away with Zuko, you know, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. They, yeah. they, they just think like she was kind of, um, that's true. She selfish. Could yeah. Like selfish because like, how was she supposed to know that like Ozai was like, she knew how horrible he was. Like, how could she just leave Zuko with him after he literally intended and to Azula. kill him? And Azula. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so people weren't happy with Ursa. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. One that I, I just had about her attitude towards Azula is maybe she she must have resented Ozai a lot because of the situation mm-hmm. she was in but maybe because she saw so much of Ozai in Azula she ended up kind of resenting Azula a little bit and didn't give mm-hmm. her the love that mm-hmm. she probably should have yeah mm-hmm. I, I also have two thoughts here the first one is and maybe my recollection is is wrong but I thought when she was approached by Ozai in the village uh Basically, the insinuation was that she had to marry him. Otherwise, there would be severe consequences. Yeah. And he marries her because she is the granddaughter or great granddaughter. Somewhere down the lineage of Fire Lord uh, Roku. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there was any way out of it. Yeah. And I think the second thing is that Fire Lord Ozai kind of lets her go. He was basically like, give me the potion to kill my dad. And then I don't want to see you ever again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe like it was a lack of him trying to capture her was the reason she got away. Mm-hmm. And if she tried to escape with his children, like he would have like found her. Yeah, he would have found, found her him. and killed her for it. And then maybe even killed Zuko for it, too. Yeah. 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 And I think Azula, obviously, as we'll see in season three, is really messed up from Ursa. Like, mm-hmm. like Ursa leaving messes her up more than she cares to admit as well, because mm-hmm. I think we in all the interactions, it's not like Ursa didn't love Azula, because I think I think. I believe her when she says she does, right? It's like mm-hmm. so a kid. But like all the interactions was always like um, you know, like disciplining her because mm-hmm. she kind of deserved it. But there was like nothing on the positive side and I mm-hmm. feel like Azula just because she never heard those words, like um those caring words like has to live out the rest of her life knowing that she never was able like her mom never loved her and like she wasn't even able to earn the love of her mother anymore because that mm-hmm. like opportunity was gone too. Because the like, kids aren't dumb, right? Like every single, like when they're before Fire Lord Azulan, she sees her mom go like hug her brother, tell him yeah. that like she loves him for who he is and give him yeah. words of affirmation, all these things. But yeah, we never see this with uh, Ursa yeah. and her. yeah. Yeah, and then, like, right before that, Azula just performed so well, and she wasn't like, great job, honey, like, nothing like that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then another relationship we get to look a little deeper into is Zuko and Azula. Um, And I think the biggest thing that stood out to me is that Zuko has empathy and Azula does not. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's pretty clear cut, like in every single scene where he's with Azula, Azula says something horrible and callous. And then he's like, oh, but how would you like it if cousin Luten wanted dad to die? Or, oh, um, Azula's like, uncle's a quitter and a loser. And then Zuko's like, how do you know what he should do? He's probably just sad his only kid is gone forever. So he's literally... Like, like the writing is so clear that he's like, but, you know, how would you feel if that like he's like really good at putting himself in 
the shoes of people who are suffering. Mm. And on the flip side of that, Azula just says the most like crazy <laughs> things as this creepy child. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I think we also see a lot of other traits of her that are portrayed here. Uh, for example, there's a shot where her, Tylee, and May are playing in this courtyard and they're all cartwheeling. And then Tylee does this like acrobatic like cartwheel flip which mm-hmm. clearly outshines Azula, and then she like shoves Tylee to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so like that, there's some jealousy there. There's the fact that at this point, you know, a younger Iroh, like essentially more ignorant Iroh, doesn't like, you know, this this whole theme of the throughout the entire show that you know looks are deceiving. It, it's not representative of your true talent and ability. He can't see this in his own niece. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's like another thing there. Maybe she feels like she's living in the shadow of her brother because there's this like lineage of patriarchs mm-hmm. in her family and she probably will ever never see the throne or the light of the day of the throne and like there's that too i don't know th- there's like a lot of things that you could potentially use to justify why she's like so fucked up and the fact that you know her mom favors her brother and her yeah. her dad is a literal psychopath yeah Definitely. Azula is a true feminist icon. (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, you're that's such a good point. Like, I feel like she knows like that she's so capable or she's so confident in her capabilities. But this this tradition is that like the lineage passes down through the firstborn Mm -hmm. son. So I read online that her strategy is just to slowly wear Zuko down. And I think that's why she always just like shits on him and like. Uh, how he can't do anything and blah, blah, blah. Like, because I don't know, just to like build herself up and like get him to the point where maybe he is like his self-esteem is so fragile that like he can't take the throne or anything, you know? Um, Yeah. Very, very smart girl. I I would watch like a house of cards, fire Lord, like show (laughs) like Robin Wright plays young Azula, you know? (laughs) <laughs> speaking of people who are playing azula <laughs> gray delisle voices azula and dante bosco voices zuko mm. but in the flashbacks young zuko is voiced by this other kid named Eli- elijah runcorn but gray delisle is still voicing azula so mm. i think that is exactly points to the fact that Azula has had quote, something wrong with her from a very, very young age. Like this whole time she's like voiced by the same crazy sounding lady that she becomes <laughs> when she's like 14. And meanwhile, Zuko sounds like, is like so innocent. And, um, and like, you can see that the person he is like in the present day, isn't the person who he was before, but Azula has like always had this, psychopathic like mm-hmm. tendency <laughs> to mm-hmm. her yeah interesting uh i guess the one last note i had on this relationship kind of ties back into stuff we we're talking about earlier one thing i thought was interesting was during the turtle duck scene it begins with zuko saying you want to see how azula treats these turtle ducks and then he like imitates what azula was doing with the turtle ducks which is it's very interesting i guess it's it seems like zuko is trying on like Azula's personality and seeing how it works mm-hmm. in the world and then is quickly yeah. rebuked by his mother for being like, what the hell are you doing, kid? So, yeah, also, I guess... In- what a snitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's, that's funny. yeah, that's funny. I didn't see it like that, but yeah. 
that too. But I guess like, like I, I would get so mad if my sister did that. I'd be like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, mother coming to the rescue there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, this next part is short, but I, I think it, it's actually quite significant, which is that the Iroh we see in this episode, we don't see any current day Iroh. We only see Iroh in the flashbacks, um, obviously, because Zuko is alone. But this younger Iroh is flawed Iroh. You know, it's the same Iroh that sends Azula this doll instead of a knife. Uh, but I think this Iroh is also pre Luten Iroh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think. It's it's really great world building of the writer, the writers, but, you know, mostly Elizabeth of putting this putting this younger Iroh in, um, which I think is really cool. Like Dragon of the West Iroh. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I guess what they're trying to show kind of is the impact that Luten's death had on Iroh. And mm-hmm. I think that is the single event that precipitated a lot of the change in Iroh. Because from the flashbacks, it does seem a lot like Iroh here prescribes to the Fire Nation ideology a lot. Um, but I think after Luten dies, we that's what precipitates the change to current day Iroh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what if Luten doesn't die and they end up winning Ba Sing Se and then... Azulon outcasts Ozai. He's like, go find the Avatar. But so all this just happens, but a hundred years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was um really interesting to see Iroh as his younger self. Um I don't think they address him as this in the episode, but online I read the phrase Crown Prince Iroh, and that was just so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Like yeah. Dragon of the West, we hear, but we never hear Crown Prince Iroh. Yeah, which... we just hear Uncle, <laughs> Uncle, Uncle. <laughs> um, and I think hearing Crown Prince Iroh uh, is significant because it makes you realize that he really would have been the next Fire Lord. And um, yeah, like the death of Luten changes him so much, and he just loses his desire for power completely like he doesn't challenge the fact that Azulon's dying wish was Ozai like to have Ozai have the throne like yeah, yeah he doesn't even try um and yeah like I'm just saying I think it's a wake-up call for him to like because the war is like and and you know the siege was 600 days or something insane and like he just like no like once he suffers his personal loss he He wakes up to the fact that, like, it's just so devastating and, like, he doesn't want to be a part of it. Okay, so do you guys want to know my conspiracy theory? Yeah. Yeah. We (laughs) never see Luten's mom. So I'm saying that Iroh is just getting around, you know, like, in, 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 you know, the way he is, you know, the way he does. Um, She's probably, you know, kind of abusing that as, like, heir to the throne, you know. And that's how that's how Luten came about. But the fact that we never see, uh, you know, right. M- Mrs. Iroh, you know, what's up with that? You're, that's so true. <laughs> Especially since he was first born. Oh, oh, oh. I read something where it was like Iroh probably like met somebody on his own and like, you know, then had Luten and like, I don't know, presumably they like died or something. And then that's why 
Azulon sets Ursa up with Ozai because it was an arranged marriage and then he wants the power of having like the Avatar's bloodline. Mm-hmm. But why didn't he do that with Iroh, you know? Like Iroh probably already had somebody. So then like, because he, you know, he wanted to like augment their bloodline somehow. And so I read I that. I think like, Iroh she... was a womanizer, you know? He, he always was. He always will be. <laughs> but also, I don't think it could have just been some random girl. Like he was the firstborn son of the Fire Lord. I feel like it had to be some regal ceremony with some from lady from a good family. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. So, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, wonder who it was. <laughs> Maybe we'll get a comic on it one day. So. Yeah. Probably not. Um, but yeah, I, wh- one other thing I wanted to say was uh, it's not explicit, but I think that after Luten's death, I guess Iroh starts caring for younger, for Zuko much more. Like, I think that's also the point where he starts becoming the caretaker for Zuko. Um mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's not clear what, what Zuko and Iroh's relationship was before Luten's death. Mm-hmm. And maybe caring for Zuko is as good for Zuko as it is for Iroh. Because it gives <gasps> Iroh a chance to, like, be a better father figure or, yeah, redeem himself. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, Siege of the North Part 2, Part 1, he, he has this moment where he's like, I don't need to say this, but I think of you as my son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Zuko's <laughs> yeah. so like, Uncle. <laughs> uncle. Stop it, Uncle. <laughs> My friends You're are here, Uncle. Me, uncle. <laughs> <laughs> uncle, I'm in class. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um Yeah, so in this episode we see Zuko alone. Surprise, surprise. Uh, But why do you think this episode focused just on Zuko? And what does Zuko kind of learn by being alone by himself through this entire episode? What do you guys think? Well, I think when we're alone, we just have a chance to be introspective. Just like I think the COVID world has taught all of us that you just got to like sit alone with your thoughts and then you just get to know yourself so much better. Like 2020 has been such a revelation for us all. This is just Zuko's COVID-19 pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds septipox. Septipox pandemic. Yeah. 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 I. I mean. I think. I. This episode is a great device to show the royal family. I think I kind of beating that one into the ground. Um, but it also shows Zuko as an antihero and a lot of the motivations he has as a character. And I mean, like that's what makes this show so great, right? I think this is this is peak Avatar right here. Um, like why he does what he does, his motivations. He's not just this one dimensional evil guy like Ozai is. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sheds light on his eventual redemption arc. And it's not that like bad man learns good thing. It's uh, like mm-hmm. people are complicated and mm-hmm. they they're motivated to do bad things, but not necessarily for bad reasons. Mm hmm. Wow. Snaps. Snaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but 
and more seriousness. <laughs> I think that um, what he learns, another thing he learns is that like no one is going to accept him if, unless he accepts himself because hmm. his whole life, the Fire Nation hasn't accepted him. And the people he helps when he finally decides to act on his compassionate side uh, also don't accept him. And that really leads him at a crossroads mm-hmm. because it's like he, like both halves of him, he like feels isolated from, I think, in this episode. So mm-hmm. it's like really a difficult choice to make of like who he wants to be. Because mm-hmm. um, when he tries out this like new side of him for the first time in a long time, um, it doesn't work out for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Does he want to be the the banished prince son of Ozai, or does he want to be Zuko, heir to the throne, fire like heir to uh, future Fire Lord, son of Ursa? Yeah, exactly. So our final question, which kind of uh, came from how this episode ended, is about Zuko's identity. So uh, as we see in the final fight. You know, he's he's getting beat up by Gao. His Gao is earthbending and he can't take him on with just his dual swords. And then he eventually firebends because that's or he sees first a vision of the last flashback of his mom telling him to never forget who he is. And then he like gets up and then he is able to fight back with his firebending. And then he reveals himself um, uh, and he says Basically that he's Zuko's son of Ozai and Ursa, fire or Prince Zuko, like heir to the throne, something, something, something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what does that mean for Zuko's identity uh, at this point in the show? And maybe beyond too. Yeah. Just one note on the music. I want to say that that kind of is interesting about this scene too is I'll start from the very beginning at the title card itself. The episode begins with the Fire Nation motif, but it's not the normal Fire Nation motif. The intervals are slightly different and I'm not going to pretend like I know what the intervals are like our friend Ben, (laughs) but the intervals are slightly different such that it's not like the resolute Fire Nation motif. It more feels like a question. It's like a Fire Nation motif question. And is it and then it obviously zooms into Zuko's face. So at the beginning of the episode, it seems as if they're almost asking the question of like, who is Zuko? Is he Fire Nation? Or like, like what? Mm. Like what's going on with him? But at the end, cool. in this scene, when he fights after his mom says, never forget who you are. And he starts firebending the Fire Nation motif, like blasts through in all its full glory. And mm. he's like, yeah, I'm the crown to the to the to the crown prince to the Fire Lord or whatever. Um, so Crown Prince I, of the Fire Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Crown Prince of the Fire Nation. Uh, so that was interesting, but I, like I don't know. I, I was wondering kind of the whole time, like who is, like, like what is Zuko's identity? Like, is it important that he is the Crown Prince of the Fire Nation, son of Ozai and Ursa? Like, does that actually have any? importance to who he is and what he does um so that's kind of one question and then i think another thing that comes up throughout this episode and in general even in the north pole is the idea of 
him as someone who never gives up. Um, the dagger that he gets from Iroh and keeps with him through this episode is the the message on the blade is never give up without a fight. Um, his mom tells him in the <laughs> made flash in say. <laughs> and made in bossing say very important. Um, and then remember his mom says earlier that uh, that's who Yorizuka is someone who keeps fighting, even though it's hard. So like, is, does that side of him mean more um, to his identity than like a title that he is crown prince to the, to the fire nation? Yeah. I don't know. So what, what do you guys think about that? So my first read um, on first watch was that I was surprised that, yeah, like that, I guess that he chose maybe like the titles and um, to align himself more with the Fire Nation again. And then it just made me think like, oh, he just wants to be accepted so badly still. And like he just still identifies more with the titles and like he hasn't grown as much as like we thought he maybe did in this episode, Um, you know, because... Yeah, I guess because he pronounces himself so proudly as the Fire Nation Prince. Um, but also I was like, it would be really weird if he was like, I'm Zuko and I'm someone who never gets up without a fight. <laughs> 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 it would be like, not intimidating at all. <laughs> He'd be like, what are you overcompensating for? <laughs> um, uh, but... Uh, digging a little deeper than that, um, and this is something I read online, which I thought was really interesting, is that it could be read as him choosing his titles, or it's a moment when the title of Fire Nation Prince and the side of like doing good converge mm, mm-hmm. into one. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. And then it's also the type of leader he does become because mm-hmm. he does eventually become yeah. the fire Lord. And he is a fire Lord who, who works um, to really serve like the people who he's um, yeah. ruling. And also he notably reclaims the identity of his mother. He says, not just that he's the son of Ozai, but also of Ursa. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. he's like, Picking up that other half of him um, again. So I know I thought it was just one, but in reality, I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I took this question of identity uh, more along the lines of his his realization or reflection that he has a lot of resentment and personal issues around his banishment that he has to work through and what his identity is as a, as a banished prince, someone who was rejected by his father, who has lost his place in his family. Um, and because he has all this resentment in him, he can't move past it and grow, which is a theme we see revisited very soon in bitter work. Um, the fact that he can't produce lightning is because precisely because of this resentment that he harbors within him. He doesn't have a calm mind. Mm. Um, and this is the inflection point. This is this is him saying, I'm not the banished prince. I am I am, you know, heir to the throne. I'm prince of the fire nation or whatever. Um, <laughs> and him, <laughs> you know, him, him trying to work around that. Yeah, mm-hmm. both both of you had really good points. Yeah. Um, yeah, so those are all the topics we want to cover. Um, and now, of course, we have to finish off with our ratings. All right, I will give this episode a nine. Uh, I think we've sung its praises quite a lot 
in our conversation so far. Um, but it is quite frankly a very well constructed episode. Lots of intrigue. It dives into Zuko's past a lot and reveals a lot of new things while still leaving a lot of questions out. It's a culmination of Zuko's arc, or as Justin said, more an inflection point in, in Zuko's arc. And so many different inspirations with the Westerns. And it's much more realistic, as we said, than, than any of the other um, episodes so far. I just don't think it quite meets the epicness of certain episodes that we see throughout the series. Um, but definitely one of the best. So I'll give it a nine. Um, just for context, according to IMDb ratings, this is the second highest rated episode in season two and 9.5 behind Crossroads of Destiny and 9.6. And the only other episodes that really beat this, I believe, are Siege of the Northern Water Tribe, part two and 9.7, and Sozin's Comet at 9.8, Sozin's Comet Avatar Aang at 9.9, which I believe is part four. Um... So with that being said, this is like literally top five Avatar, the last Airbender episode. Uh, I give this a 10. Um, it's just one of the best episodes, one of the best world building episodes, one of the best character building episodes. Like there might not be a lot of action, but when there is, it's pretty cool. Um, and... You know, a lot of homages to other genres of TV and movies. Um, and then finally, this this demonstrates that a great Avatar episode doesn't need to have anging. <laughs> yeah, but those are great, too. The other four of the top five have anging. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I also give this one a 10. I read a review that was just saying this is darker and edgier than the other episodes. And it definitely is. And I feel like it it makes it it's like Zuko and his character in this episode, like are really some like some of the things that make Avatar just like such a great show in general outside of the children's TV genre. Um, I even read something that was like, oh, are you trying to get into Avatar? Like skip the first few and just go straight to Zuko alone because <laughs> it like stands it can like stand well on its own but I mean I disagree with that but yeah I don't know I mean like what you guys all said it's just like I think Zuko is the best character and we get a whole episode dedicated to him and his backstory and it honestly never even occurred to me that the gang was missing um until I realized it after the fact so I think that's just how you know that it's really really good and it's not even like i love stupid jokes too like i love king of omashu and like ember island players <laughs> i did say ember island players is my favorite episode in episode zero of our podcast um i might have to rethink that later but yeah didn't really miss that either and i think that just means like this episode was really top notch so yeah that's it for today's discussion we hope you enjoyed this new format that 
I mean, I think worked really well for this episode in particular. So we'll see if we keep doing them like this. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of Zuko Alone. As always, we release on WhatsApp on Wednesday. So we'll see you next time for our discussion of The Chase. Don't worry, the gang is coming back. Um, if you want to stay up to date with when we release or submit thoughts or questions on the episodes, be sure to follow us on Instagram at at what's underscore appa, like our Facebook page, or you can email us at whatsappapod at gmail.com. Also, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this episode, be sure to hit us up with a five-star rating. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Hotman. <laughs>